0: We are back in John 17, which I believe still is found on page 1073 of your pew Bible. As we continue our study this morning and return once again to this wonderful prayer, we are reminded that he prayed this prayer on the night before he was crucified, suffered, and died and that he prayed it for us as followers, as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a marvelous, wonderful part of the scriptures and an insight into our Savior's deep concern for his people, for whom he came to suffer and die. And we remember that this prayer is divided into three major divisions. We are in the second of those three, verses 6 Through 19, they contain his prayer for his own disciples, those who lived with him while he was on earth and would go on to become his ambassadors in the world, taking the message of salvation which Christ had given to them. You see that in verse 14, he says to his father, I have given them your word. They would be called to take that message to Jew and Gentile alike, to the whole earth, How fitting it was then that our Savior should pray specifically for them, considering the great enemies that they would face. And we know those enemies, the devil himself, he prays that they would be kept from the evil one. The world in which they were living hated them because it hated Jesus. And so as he prays for them in this section, verses 6 through 19, he prays, For three specific things, their preservation, that is, their security and safety, that God would preserve them. And then he prays for their separation from the world, that they would realize that they are no longer of the world, but now have been made members of a kingdom over which Christ is head and Lord. And then thirdly, he prays for them that they would be consecrated or set apart to the Lord. This first great theme of preservation, as we've studied it already, is what I believe is really the the central and most comforting theme of this entire prayer. When we walk away from the study of this prayer, my prayer for you is that you with me would understand that Christ will preserve us. He will keep us. God will keep us until the very end because Jesus is praying for that. As Matthew Henry noted... He is praying that they might be kept from sin, furnished for their duty, and brought safely, finally, to heaven itself. In our last study, we looked at how Jesus prays that his disciples, both those that he prays for specifically here, as well as those who would follow after them because of their testimony, would know themselves to be and live as those who are separated now from the world. We see that if you look at the verses, especially 15 and 16. I do not ask, Jesus says, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus wants his people, these disciples, and us to understand that we are no longer of the world. Those who are called by God to live in this world are no longer of it. This world for us is now a place of an irreconcilable war, a war that rages between the spirit who now dwells within us and the world and the forces of this world and of the evil one who rules in this world under God's sovereignty. And so we're always at war. This world, of course, as we've noted already, is not our home. We have a new home, a home where there is an imperishable inheritance kept for us by the Lord himself. And this world is a place where we are sent into then as ambassadors. It's almost as if God is telling us, I'm taking you out of the world, I'm transforming you, and I'm sending you back in. In fact, that's exactly what he's telling us. We are sent now as ambassadors, transformed by Christ, by all that God has purposed to do in him so that we might be his faithful witnesses in this world. Now this was so important for him to pray these things for these disciples specifically. Remember, he's praying this for all of us. None of us are outside of these requests that Jesus brings to his Father. He's praying this now for every one of us, but it was so important that he pray it for them. Because these men, eleven, not one who was the son of perdition, Judas, who betrayed him, but for these eleven, and for others who will be added as we know the New Testament unfolds, as these men, they were called to be the very foundation of this kingdom which Jesus has brought to this world. His church now in the world. Ephesians 2 reminds us, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens now with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You see why he's praying for them so urgently. With all of this evil, all of these enemies around them, their very lives threatened. Every one of them, save one, would be a martyr for Jesus Christ. But God would accomplish his purposes through their faithfulness, God's faithfulness to them, their faithfulness as well. They would become the foundation of the very church itself, Jesus being the chief cornerstone. The apostles called set apart by God and those whom he would choose to write the very word of God, of which we'll speak this morning, which would become the very foundation of the church, the household of God. But there is more that he needs to pray for them besides these things. And that is what we will turn our attention to this morning, especially verse 17. But as we've done all throughout this study, we'll stand, hear God's word read Verses 6 through 19, please stand as you give your attention to this, the very word of God, the voice of our Savior praying for you and for all of those who would believe. Beginning in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Thus far the reading of God's word. All flesh is as grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers, they fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, it is only fitting as we study this passage that we would ask that even now, by the Spirit of God, you would sanctify us by your word, for your word is truth. So bless us help us to hear it as the very word of God, to receive it with joy, and to allow the Spirit in our lives to continue that work which you have begun, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I hope you see that our text this morning, which really is John 17:17, 17, 17, but it's really 17 through 19, but, and we'll talk about the whole of it, but, but this teaching that we're going to study this morning actually builds upon everything that we studied last time, the fact that we are separated from the world. It's actually the positive side of our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. The negative side is that we are called to no longer be those who are of the world, who are like the world in our thoughts, the way we think about things, so many things that people are thinking about today. We are to have the mind of Christ in those things and not the mind of the world. And so that's really the negative, to be separated from, taken out of the world, even though we are sent into the world as missionaries and as witnesses for Christ. It is still negative to have no longer anything to do with the way the world conducts themselves or thinks about the various matters that are constantly before us. This, then, this morning, is the positive side of that. And here is the point. Those who are called to be separated from the world and the things of the world— And the ways in which the world thinks and processes these and understands everything are those who have by God's grace and power been sanctified and set apart to God. So separated from the world, sanctified unto God. That's really the key that we're looking at this morning. And they are, as we say, two sides of the same coin, right? They are really saying the same thing. Those separated from the world are separated, sanctified, set apart unto God for service. God has a new calling for each of those whom he calls out of the world and sends back into the world as those who will represent him. And this is the very thing that Jesus prays for and then illustrates in his text, in the text before us. And that is verses 17 through 19, the last part of this second major section. And so three things then to look at this morning to help us understand everything that this passage is talking about. The first is to define the term here used by Jesus. You see it in verse 17, the very first word, sanctify them in the truth. What does it mean to sanctify? What is the definition of to sanctify? Well, it is a fairly direct and easy definition seen throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament alike. A comparable word, a synonym would be to be made holy. And that language is used by God in his word in many, many different ways. For instance, in the Old Testament, the language of holiness to be set apart, which is literally what this word means, is used of places, of people, of things. Think of the people of Israel themselves. They were called as one nation from among the nations of the earth and set apart unto God. They were made holy unto God and consequently... You see in the Old Testament all throughout that a people set apart by God were then called to be actually holy and to live holy lives for God. So that connection is, we'll see, very, very important. The one leads to the other. It has to necessarily. It's spoken of, as we think of, places. There are places in the Old Testament that are set apart by God. The holy land itself is set apart by God, as holy unto him. They were to go into that land and utterly remove everything that was opposed to him. That's where they failed in so many ways and places. But the land itself was set apart by God. The The city of Jerusalem was set apart by God. The temple was set apart by God. When his Shekinah glory fell upon the temple, it was an indication that God's presence was there. His holy presence was there. Therefore, it itself was set apart by God. All of this is a picture of what holiness means or sanctification means. It means to be set apart for a particular use In the hands of God. Now, I don't want to get too far into some of the distinctions here, but I do think it's important this morning to understand the way the Bible sometimes speaks of this idea of being holy or set apart with respect to believers and what God does in and through us. And so there are commonly understood to be two aspects of this setting apart the one is a definitive sanctification. It's a fancy word which means it's already done. That God in this sense definitively has already set all believers apart through union with Jesus Christ and through granting to them his righteousness. We are clothed, the Bible says, right now in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer this morning, you stand... As it were, in the presence of God right now, he sees you right now, and me, because of the work of Jesus finished on the cross for us, and the whole purpose and intent of God, we stand clothed already perfectly in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For this reason, Romans 6 speaks of it this way, right? We were crucified with Jesus on the cross. We were raised to new life with Jesus. We are to consider ourselves right now dead to sin, even though every one of us every day struggles against sin. There's a definitive aspect to sanctification. That's why believers are called saints in the Bible, The term is not used, as I grew up in Roman Catholicism, of special people who rise to a special rank of obedience and faithfulness and get to be called a saint and prayed to and offerings made to, etc. That's not what the Bible means when it calls every believer a saint. It's a way to say your identity now in Jesus is one who is perfected in holiness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are a saint, and so am I. Union with Christ is the key, clothed in his righteousness, already made perfect in him. This reality in Romans 6 is a great example of it. Read the whole of the chapter and you'll see how Paul moves from this definitive sanctification to a progressive sanctification, an ongoing work of God by his grace in our lives. Our confession puts it this way when it talks about sanctification. They are effectually called, who, who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. There's a progressive nature as well of our sanctification. The definitive says we're already present in Jesus, united to him, clothed in his righteousness, made perfect, fully and completely in him. But in this life, as we wrestle with this irreconcilable war and this battle against sin, we are progressively being made more and more holy. We are mortifying sin. Its power over us has been weakened by a death blow because of Jesus Christ. Our desires have changed. Our lusts and what we desire in those ways have changed completely because of the work of God's grace in our life. We are being more and more quickened, made alive, more and more strengthened by all of his grace to walk in holiness of life, progressively moving in one direction. Recently, we had our officer training and I recalled as we were studying the very topic of sanctification and illustration from years ago John Gerstner one of the great theologians of the last century now with the lord but he told this wonderful picture and I've never forgotten and it's true as we think about our lives God's purpose is our conformity to Jesus Christ and so sanctification is like a train going down the track and the track is going in one direction to the image of Jesus Christ, the perfections of all that is in Jesus. And there we are on the top of the train, walking, as it were, on the top of the train in the same direction. But Gerstner said this, and it's so important to understand. Even in those times in our lives when we turn around on the top of that train and we walk in disobedience to Christ, guess what? The train is still moving. It's still going in the same direction. God's purposes will stand. We will be conformed to the image of Christ if we are His. So, even our rebellion, even the ways in which we dishonor Christ, even in the ways we shirk all that He calls us to do, is used of God in His providence and by His power and might to continue to move us along ever so slowly but surely into the image of Christ. Now, both of these senses of sanctification, I think, are in the text here, with Jesus prays, that we might know that we are definitively already sanctified in him. But I think the emphasis clearly is on the progressive nature of sanctification, that we would be made more and more holy, more and more like Jesus, ongoing, inwardly, and outwardly, not merely an external conformity to to sort of rules and regulations. You know, there are Christians who do that, right? Holiness means just following the rules. But that's not what holiness means in the Bible. Holiness is outward. It is rules given that we must obey, but it's an inward. And I love the prayers of so many of our students and, and And maybe they're just all thinking alike, which I think is great. They all pray the same thing. Pray that God would allow me to grow in my devotion to his word. Inwardly to have a desire to grow in my devotion and the reading of his word. You see, that is God's great purpose. And Jesus is simply praying consistent with that great purpose. You know it in Romans 8. He works all things together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, he also predestined for what purpose? To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You think of that glorious day where Jesus will come in all power and glory. He will gather his elect from all ages. He will stand before his father and he will say, here I am, father, and those whom you have given to me. And guess what? Every one of us will look just like him. I don't mean physically. I mean inwardly, spiritually, morally, we will be perfect And we will reflect him because that's God's great purpose. And Paul says that this connection between definitive and and progressive sanctification is really important. The one leads to another. And so the New Testament is filled with commandments to be imitators of God. Dear children, Ephesians 5.1 says, beloved children, be imitators of God Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We are being made holy and we are to pursue holiness. This is our sanctification. This is what Jesus is praying for in this verse. But secondly, and this is so important for us to see, there is a method of our sanctification, a means by which this will be accomplished. And make no mistake about it, Jesus doesn't offer several means. He gives one. Because there's only one way to grow in Christ's likeness. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones who calls this the method of our sanctification in his wonderful work on John 17. He takes a hundred pages to talk about this one verse. Praise God I'm not taking a hundred pages. Men like that could. I'm not a man like that. But I can tell you that there is no other way but this method that Jesus here speaks of. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's really answering the question, how is this sanctification accomplished? What means does God use? The answer is straightforward. May be discouraging to us. There's no secret pill, no secret prayer, no secret way of conducting your life. It is simply this it is the Word of God. It is the Holy Spirit taking the Holy Word and making a holy people. That's what sanctification is the Holy Spirit taking the Holy Word of God and making a holy people. That is all throughout the Bible. There is no way of escaping the means by which, the method by which God sanctifies his people. He doesn't do it apart from the word because the word itself is the word of a holy God. It itself is holy. And God uses that word. The power is God's. It's not the mystery of the word that we have this word. We, we kind of let the, It's not the word itself. It's the means, the w- what of what God uses. The word of God. So the word is not magical, it's God being pleased by his Spirit to take that word and to use it in our lives for our growth in grace and holiness in the Lord. Pastor Fisher is leading us through a study of First Timothy, Second Timothy, and we'll soon move to Titus as well. But as we consider the pastoral epistles, so much of what Paul wrote was centered upon the centrality of the word of God in the ministry, the life of Timothy, not only for himself, but for his hearers as well. And he writes in 2 Timothy 3, that famous passage beginning first in verse 15, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. What's he talking about? He's talking about the word of God, knowing from whom you've learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the word of God, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all scripture is breathed out by God, is the very breath of God. That is why it's the Holy Spirit taking the holy word and making holy people. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Translation, to live a holy, sanctified life. It is through the word of Christ, the word of God, that he makes his people holy. And what Jesus is praying is for that to continue throughout the lives of these disciples and everyone who by their testimony would come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There, again, is no easier way, no clearer way to say it than what I've said several times, the Holy Spirit taking the holy word and making a holy people. That is why the word of God must be central in our lives. There is no substitute, no Christian novels, no Christian stories, no whatever the case may be that's out there that that may be coming alongside of the word, but is not the word itself. It is the word of God itself that he has given to us by which, through which he makes us more and more like Jesus. Everyone who pursues the knowledge of the word of Christ, where Psalm 119, and I commend this to you, it it is a portion of scripture that deals every single verse with the glory, the beauty, the, the, the loveliness of the word of God and essentially is a prayer asking that this word would do its work in our lives. My encouragement, among other things that I will encourage you this morning with, is to take Psalm 119 and make it section by section a part of your prayer life and and change the language of what the psalmist says into a prayer for yourself that you might see the centrality of the word and its impact upon your life in making you more and more like Jesus. If you sit here this morning and you're wondering, why am I not becoming more and more like him in my attitudes, in, in, in the ways I live, the choices I make? Why is it? If you can look at your life and say, I spend zero time or very little time in his word, you've seen the connection. That's the connection. That's the way Jesus is praying. That is what he's asking. Now, listen, there's one thing to say about this, and it's, it's not a throwaway line at the end of verse 17. It's not Jesus' way of simply saying, listen, sanctify us by the truth. Oh, by the way, it, your word is what I'm talking about. That's the truth. That's not what he's doing. We, we know that the truth is God's word. Jesus says it here to reinforce his own view and understanding of the holy word of God the word, thy word, is truth. Thy word is truth. If we're going to deal honestly with Jesus, we have to understand how Jesus understood the Bible. And when he talks about the word, yes, he has in his mind, in the context of which he is speaking, the Old Testament primarily. But Jesus, who has given already the word to these men who will inscripturate that word under the inspiration of God the Father and by the Holy Spirit, has in view, as Timothy hears from Paul, all of scripture, including what Paul writes, every writer, all of scripture beginning to end, all of it is truth. It is truth. The world in which we live today looks at this Bible, says what? It's outdated, it's foolish, it's not current with the times, all kinds of things, both mundane and cruel and hateful, with regard to this word. But for the believer, the words of Jesus are to be our words as well. Thy word is truth. When we're confronted by a world that says, this is ridiculous. How could you possibly believe this? We simply say, thy word, O oh Lord, is truth. And we know it's truth by the testimony of the spirit within us. We cannot, one writer says, have a lesser view in the Bible than Jesus did. We can't. We can't have a lesser view of God's word than what Jesus viewed. it. And what he says here is this word, all of it, 66 books beginning to end, every word that God revealed through his spirit, that is truth. And it leads us, it enables us to understand the world, and it is, Jesus says, the very method of our sanctification. Thirdly, and moving more quickly, as my mouth is dry... Notice the purpose of our sanctification. This is really a a tangential but important point here as Jesus goes on in verses 18 and 19 to say that what he does. Why are we being sanctified? Why are we being made more and more holy like Jesus Christ? It is so that we can be sent into the world as his ambassadors. Think of it for a second. Jesus, perfectly holy, lived a perfectly holy and righteous life, never sinned, taught by commandment, taught by example, all that his followers are to be. Think of what it would mean if this Jesus sends into the world a people who look nothing like him, who look just like the world, acted like the world, thought like the world, but still wanted to represent Jesus. How foolish and ridiculous that would be and how counter to the progress of the gospel. Think of all of the, over history, go back as far as you want into the last century, into the recent decades, and think about the shame that has been brought upon the name of Christ and his church because of people who once professed publicly, outwardly, their love for Jesus, and yet by their very lives demonstrated they had no part in him. I'm not gonna name names, you know them as well as I do. People, prominent people whose ministries were established on the basis of sanctification, holy people living holy lives, only to be found out that they were not in any way living a holy life. Think of the damage, irreparable damage that that does to the church of Jesus Christ. The purpose of our sanctification is that Jesus might send us into the world as his representatives of who he is, a holy savior, a holy king, whose people seek to live holy lives by his grace and power alone. And notice, don't miss this, verse 19 It is for their sake, for their sanctification is what he means. It's for this great end that they might be holy that I now consecrate myself. One commentator said this week as he was talking about this passage, and I agree with him, I hate when the same word, consecrate and sanctify in verse 17, it's the same word and yet they use a different one. There's no need to do it. So really, he says, I sanctify, set myself apart, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. What's he talking about? It's the night before he dies. Everything I'm about to do, he says, is for this great purpose, that this people would be holy unto you, Father, holy, like me, perfect, like me, definitively. Progressively, until I return and finish the work that you have begun in them. Jesus sets himself apart to a cross, to suffering, to shame, to a cruel death, ultimately to a resurrection and ascension into glory so that his people, this people, you and I, could be made holy. He's doing that for us. And then he says, I am sending them into the world as my representatives, as people who look like me, not physically, morally, in the choices we make, the ways we think, all of those things. And doesn't Ephesians 5 put it so well? It's a marriage text, right? Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for her. I consecrate, sanctify myself. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with water of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor and glory, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful picture? of our Savior, fully revealing to us in this prayer, to his Father, to his followers, that he has set himself apart for this great purpose and end. This is authentic Christianity, and it's only authentic Christianity lived out in obedience to Christ, which will have any attraction to those in the world who are seeking, by God's grace, something different than the world offers to them. Paul commends himself, for instance, as he writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He writes to them, and it's very important that he tells them this. He says, you know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know, he says, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You are our witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. There's nothing wrong with Paul saying that. You see what he's doing. He's saying, listen, we we came to you just as if we were like Christ coming to you. We we sought to be among you those who were holy and righteous and blameless because our message is rooted in a Savior who was perfectly holy. And you can't have the messenger steal from the message by refuting the very message by their lives. You can't have that. They have to be one and the same. They have to be. That's the only way, as we've said, so many have done harm to the church. That's the only way we can be his faithful witnesses in this world. And so this is the why. This is for what purpose? Why is he sanctifying us? Why is he doing that? Because as he was sent from the Father, he's sending us. And as he was sent as a perfect lamb of God, spotless without blemish, so he calls us to enter into this world, never fully sanctified in this life as far as our lives and the wrestling with sin, but more and more demonstrating by the power of the word, by the spirit at work within us, that we belong to Jesus. Three things then as we close out this wonderful, glorious picture of what he prays for. This I think is part of the central purpose of this prayer, this, these verses. Especially verse 17. This is his whole aim. You you want to know what Jesus desires most? It's in this prayer. That's what he desires most for us. You want to know what you should desire most for yourself as a follower of Jesus? This prayer. Because it's his desire. And his desire should be our desire. Three things as we close. Note here again the absolute centrality and necessity of the word of God. This is so much true that the way the Bible speaks about your entire life is centered upon the word of God. There's not one aspect of your life as a follower of Jesus that is not rooted in and comes from the power of a Holy Spirit taking a holy word and making a holy people. There's not one aspect. Your regeneration, your being made alive, given new desires, new thoughts, new understandings of the world in which we live. A new heart out of which this life is rooted and faith comes and repentance comes. All of that was by the word of God. John 1. Verse 12, you've not been born again by the, the power of man, by man's desire, etc., but by the word of God, by God himself, the power of God. First Peter one twenty two: having purified your souls, your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Your justification is rooted in the word of God. Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul glories in justification because he understands it's by the power of the word of God that we are justified. God declaring us to be in his presence because of Christ Christ perfectly holy and righteous. All of your ongoing sanctification is rooted in the word of God, and you cannot separate yourself from it. You do so at your own peril. Every time you or I move in a direction of holiness, every time we choose to obey and follow Jesus and to be made or to be like him, every movement from being like the world to being made more like Jesus, every small step forward in holiness is rooted in this prayer that he prays for you. Every step, every moment, every moment of growth, it is because he is praying for you and for me and for all those who love him. And his father delights to answer his prayers. He delights to answer them. And he's doing it in our lives. As we see sin more and more put away in our lives, holiness and righteousness coming more to the forefront, obedience to Christ, love for Jesus, love for his people, love for the lost. Whatever would mark out his mind, his person, his character in our lives... It is all rooted in this prayer that he prays for you and for me here this morning. How can a young man, one writer said, why does he say young man? He says young man here because young men have a tough time. Life is hard for young men in this world. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you, Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Everything we do here at Grace is rooted, as you know, we've told you, in the word of God, everything. All of the means of grace, the word of Christ being one of them, sacraments and prayer, they're all rooted in the word of God. We don't celebrate the sacrament apart from the preaching of the word because apart from the word, it has no meaning It's a visible display of the Word before us, but it's always accompanied by the Word. So everything we do, everything God does in our lives is rooted in the Word of God and God using it, a Holy Spirit, using a Holy Word to make holy people. Perfect day, Sunday, the last Sunday of August, we buy 40 subscriptions to Table Talk. We buy 25 to Days of Praise. All the new ones for September are right out there on the thing. They're only tools. They're only tools. They're good tools. But they're only tools to get you in the word and allow the word to wash over you to make you more and more like Jesus. I encourage you to take one. If 40 go, we'll get more. Secondly, are you a missionary? Or are you a mission field? I stole this from someone this week, admittedly, someone who said that we are either one or the other. We are missionaries sent into the world or we are a mission field needing the message of the gospel itself. Which are you this morning? I pray sincerely that each of you here this morning, hearing the word of Christ and the message of salvation in this place, perhaps for the first time or for so long, Would understand yourself to be this a missionary, sent once into the world rather than a mission field. But if you are a mission field, believe the gospel. Come to faith in Jesus. Find in him all that you are seeking, all that you could ever desire, all that you could ever need. I came across a wonderful uh, illustration this week. It was very Uh, personal to me because I love magnets. I don't know if children, you like magnets. I like magnets. Put a bunch of them in front of me. I'm going to play for a long time. And what I especially like to do with magnets is to make them move without touching them. And you know how to do that, right? Magnets have two poles. They call them north and south. Now, I'm going to get only as technical as someone like me can get. But there's a north pole and a south pole to a magnet, now, what's interesting about magnets is that those two poles, north and south, will attract each other. North and south always attract. South and north always attract. So you take a magnet north side, and you can tell if you're on the north or south side because you put it to another magnet. If it's attracting, then you know you have the opposite. Opposites attract in magnets and in love and romance, apparently. <laughs> but when you turn them to the same, north and north, south and south, they repel each other, they push each other away. It's a wonderful illustration of our lives. As we go into this world, if our lives are characterized by authentic holiness and purity, by the grace of God, then there is, by God's grace working in people, there is, there are those who are not Christians who are drawn to Christ in our lives. That's why Jesus says, Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. They would have nothing to say against you because they saw the genuineness of your life. But if you are no different than the world, you will repel them. It's a very interesting illustration. Perhaps you can work it out in your minds as you think more on it. Again, think of the ways the cause of Christ had been damaged, where people have said these Christians are nothing but hypocrites because of their visible, uh, profane, and ungodly lives and actions that have come to light. It repels the world. But when you love Christ and you're walking with Jesus, becoming more like him, God often uses it, not always because he says the world will hate us because we love him, But so many have come to faith in Jesus because they've seen the genuineness of a holy life within us, because we're different from them, and they're drawn to the difference which is Christ living in us. One pastor this week I was listening to, Terry Johnson, told a story about when he was in college. He had a very close friend, they were living in a fraternity. He was a believer all of his life, born and raised in a Christian home. And he was living his life. He was frustrated because he could not get this guy to sort of understand the gospel. So they were at a party one night. He was doing what he always does, just sitting and watching. His friend was drunk already, etc. partying, no boundaries, no limits, nothing. And he said to him, he said to his friend, listen, what would you say if I moseyed on up to the bar and I drank myself drunk, blind drunk? Immediately, his friend's face changed. He looked at him with seriousness and he said, I would be incredibly disappointed. His point was, You're the only one I know who is living a genuine life consistent with what you say you believe. I would be devastated if you did that. Terry took the point to heart and he says, it's an attraction it draws those who are different and from whom we, we are different finally i know our time is past let me end with one more and and i could say this for the whole prayer uh, perhaps i already did this prayer of jesus this particular aspect this verse 17 it must be our prayer as well make it your prayer for yourself when you open the word, pray, just just briefly pray, Father, sanctify me by your word. Make me Lord more like Jesus because what I'm about to read, pray it for your children as you watch. Some of our children are wandering from the faith. They've drifted from the things we've taught them. Pray that God would sanctify that word that you've implanted into their lives throughout their whole lives, that he would use it to call them, to draw them. If they're not yet Jesus's, that they would become his, that they would be made alive by the word of Christ. Pray it for one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Richly, Paul says, let it dwell in you richly. My mother-in-law, who I checked with my wife, I think we have this true, I didn't check the Bibles, but my kids will now since I'm mentioning it. My mother-in-law is the one who gave all of our children, five children, Bibles, gave them their first Bibles. And I remember her saying years ago that she had this memory of someone who said this to her, and it greatly impacted her. And I think she said she wanted to write, and maybe she did for the older ones, I'm not sure, on the inside cover of a Bible, this simple phrase, which is so profound, and which really became the foundation of why she faithfully read and meditate upon God's word every day, She wrote wrote this maybe in her own Bible, maybe in our kids' Bibles, but she certainly said it, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Very simple, perhaps you've heard it, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. How can we look at the whole of the Christian life, and why is this prayer, what this prayer is really all about? As I've said all along is the assurance of our salvation. It's really what it's about. We can rest in the confidence that God will do his good work. As I was studying this week, I was meditating upon that passage in Philippians 1.6, where Paul says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, how could Paul speak so confidently about knowing that God will bring this work that he began to completion? And I thought, of course. It's because what Jesus is praying for. And the father delights to answer his son Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, he will bring this work to completion because he's praying for it. Every moment of every day, know that your Savior delights to pray for you, that you might be brought safely home. Let us pray. Father, how we rejoice that our Savior is a praying Savior even now, interceding for us at your right hand. And that his prayer for us is the most central thing for which he could ask. That we would be as his people, as your people, sanctified, made like him, more holy, day by day by day. And we are confident, we are certain, we are as sure as we are about anything. That you who have began this good work in us, through the regenerating power of the Spirit by the word will bring this work to completion at the day of Christ. And for this, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.